0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Morning Shot Uncut, the podcast of the Morning Shot YouTube channel. Today we actually have a guest. I'm sure you'd be happy to hear that. And the guest is, of course, Camden Ballet, who was my co-conspirator in creating the capitalist party of South Africa. Camden, 100. Oh, lekker, So it's a cracker. <laughs> <laughs> Groovy like and, a movie. What, what else do you want to hear? I only know rude ways to say... Those things. So I think we'll just move on swiftly from that. So the reason I wanted you on the show is you were on the burning platform on cliff Central with Gareth Cliff last week, and you made a, a bit of a point about explaining how the economy of South Africa works. And I don't think a lot of people actually know how the economy of South Africa works. So I was hoping we could have some sort of discussion around that, and more importantly, how to ensure the economy evolves to make South Africa a better place for everyone within it. So. Broadly speaking, you say the economy is largely extractive. But what do you mean by that?
1: Well, what it means is that pretty much for the past slightly more than one hundred years, you know, going round to the beginning of the twentieth century, the entire economy of this country is revolved around pulling minerals from the ground and shipping them outside the country. And you know, for in the beginning, that was actually very profitable because. Johannesburg literally is a city that only exists because of the fact that we had gold around here. But uh, most of that gold has now been pulled out from the ground. and We are now going four kilometers deep to be able to pull out the gold that's actually left. And we're actually way behind many other economies right now. I mean, China produces significantly more gold than we do. Russia produces far more gold than we do. Um, But uh, uh, we're continuing to extract as much as we possibly can. But what
0: happens when those minerals run out? So again, when you say beneficiation, what does it actually mean in, in real terms?
1: Well, most practical example, I started off with manganese, where we do pretty much have um, an almost monopoly to some extent. And currently we're shipping out ore. We're not actually shipping out refined um, uh, manganese. One of the earliest, uh, easiest things that we can do in terms of, you know, kickstarting our uh, virtual monopoly is to ensure that we are actually doing the processing on this side and then actually shipping refined minerals outside the country and obviously charging a premium for that. The second thing that we need to be doing at that level is to then form cartels with other parties that actually have an interest in um, uh, ensuring that the price of those commodities gets jacked up. You know, case in point, why is OPEC as successful as it is? It's because they recognize that by getting together, they can actually control the prices on the world market, and they do so. And, you know, we may disapprove of it, but, hey, it works for them. So uh, if you look at the situation right now where – Saudi Arabia and Russia, just between them, agreed to drastic slashes in terms of production. And the, the immediate result of that is that the price of oil goes up. The price of oil goes up. Guess what? Putin then proceeds to devalue the ruble because he can afford to because his net revenue is still remaining the same. Now, consider the spaces where we could be playing where we're currently not playing. Oh. Uranium is a classic example, all right? Uh... The number of places in the world that actually produce uranium that's suitable for refining to be used in nuclear reactors, there's a handful of them. And right now, it's basically, it's Russia, it's Kazakhstan, it's ourselves. Now, all of those French nuclear reactors have to be getting their nuclear fuel from somewhere. Where are they currently getting it from? Well, it goes via Kazakhstan. It goes across to the United States where it gets refined by Westinghouse and then gets shipped back. And I'm saying, no, screw that. What we need to do is to have a cartel that actually comprises all of the countries in the world that actually are outputting uranium, and we get together, and we take the refining of that uranium under our control. I mean, we've got this ridiculous situation right now where we are shipping uranium out of the country, and Westinghouse has to send it back to us to use in Cuba. That's nuts. So that that's two examples that we've got so far. Okay, it's manganese, it, it, it's uranium, and it, it's places where we can actually end up exerting economic muscle to the benefit of the country. This is actually something that Gaton
2: McKenzie raised with us when we interviewed him. Basically said that uh, we should adopt the Zimbabwe model. Whenever anybody mentions Zimbabwe, everybody gets those cold shivers, and they're like, ah, land expropriation or something. But he says the one thing that Mugabe got pretty good is that he insisted that if you mining his minerals, has to be refined and turned into a usable good in his country. He says, so Gateson said the fastest way to decrease unemployment in this country would be to insist on that model. If you want to extract minerals from us, you must create the refinery plants and the manufacturing plants here, so that you can turn them into your goods and then ship your goods
1: abroad, not just minerals makes absolute sense. And uh, Managawa has done exactly the same thing recently with uh, the lithium that they've discovered in Zim. Mm. So they're, they're very similar. Yeah, so they've discovered similar. substantial deposits of lithium in Zim. And the first thing that he said was, no, actually, you're not going to be shipping this out to turn into batteries in other countries and ship back to us. You've got to establish the battery factories right here and export them to the rest of the world from here. And yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. So we had a very similar conversation with uh, Crown Prince
2: Adil, Is the, uh, the heir to the throne of the Paddy people. And he said, actually, if you look at the railway lines in South Africa, a lot of them are extractive. So the railway lines are literally running from key strategic locations, which were usually mines or, or some kind of mining area, and they would literally run all the way to a port. He says, so that shows you that, traditionally speaking, the railway lines were set up to do mineral extraction. But there's very little of the infrastructure that leads to inland places, places of manufacturing or places of working. And
1: if you look at that, he's actually, he's correct. There's very few factories and key locations. Actually, Byron, I need to actually correct something on that point, because that wasn't the case up until the end of the apartheid era because we had substantial volumes that were actually moving from our ports inland. And um, consider, for example, you would have train drivers from Durban who would um, pick up a load of freight cars at the port, and then that train would go all the way up to Zambia. You know, that there'd, there'd be... Uh, you know the the train driver. He's, he was probably a Royan, who would uh, um, uh, tell his wife, Fro Zambia too." And he would, you know, take his lunchbox, and then he would be behind the wheel of that uh, that train. Um, uh, you know, taking naps in between while his fellow driver was doing it as well. But two days later, they would be in Zambia. That train would move not would would move nonstop. All of the shunting lines that used to exist down at Durban Harbor don't exist anymore. No, absolutely. Because, yeah, if you look across in, um, uh, if you drive through Langlachter today up here in Gauteng, uh, Roman, you've probably seen that as well. You drive through most of the roads out there, there are abandoned warehouses where there used to be a time when there used to be goods produced through that entire stretch. It was one of the most productive industrial stretches in the world. And those shunting lines were there because there were trains moving all the time. Yeah. That's that's basically uh, completely destroyed during the tenure of the ANC because they don't understand how an economy works. But, Roman, it comes back to the point that I was making on Gareth's show, which is none of our political leaders actually understand how an economy works. Which I think the point that the Crown Prince was making is that... uh...
2: In effect, if we could regenerate the manufacturing, what that would do is it would revitalize. As a consequence of that, it would revitalize the railway because you'd have to have it there in order to export the actual goods. So his argument, whether you buy it or not, it's a different story, but his argument was that another problem of extracting minerals is that, as you know, the railway lines that are there, the ones that are working, are taking the minerals out of the country What they're not doing is they're not providing an infrastructure for people to get around for work. And his argument is if you actually start making people actually build manufacturing industries and plants and refineries, then the fact that you have to revitalize those public transport mechanisms anyway, which improves mobility of people in the country. So his argument is if we go down that route, we're all better off for it. It improves the country as a whole, including the infrastructure. So it's a... Long story short, this is, it's, a, it's, a it's a brilliant strategy. We should be doing this. We shouldn't just be exporting our minerals.
1: Yeah, look, it's, a, it's fairly interesting that he's come up with that. I've got an entire chapter in my book that's devoted very specifically to how we need to go about revitalizing the rail infrastructure. And, you know, one of the points that I make there is that um, public transportation along, uh, uh, by rail um, almost never makes a profit so that's the first thing to understand. But at the same time, you have to recognize that the overall benefit to a society at large by making use of rail infrastructure rather than um, making use of cars and trucks, as we currently do, um, actually is payback of a different sort that actually makes it worthwhile. Uh, you know, very good example, um, a person who currently lives in Soweto and works in Pretoria who has to take three taxis in order to get uh, to work every morning three taxis to get back in the evening. And the overall societal impact on the families of all of those people who are doing a similar commute is that that's essentially two hours a day that that parent is not spending with his or her kid. And the benefit to society, just in terms of having a subsidized train, as an example, means that you are immediately adding value to all of the people who are not spending time actually sitting in traffic, uh, with, again, which are yeah. things we don't quantify. No. All but, all uh, in, in terms away. of the rail systems, uh, yeah, the, the point that you were making, Byron, was absolutely correct that, uh, we, uh, we need to develop the rail structure, but again, the way in which we need to look at it is there, there has to be a split, you know, pretty much like we've spoken in the past about ESCOM needing to be split between transmission and distribution and, uh, and the same model needs to apply in terms of the railways.
0: But this is this is also a very important point, especially for our listeners. So we've been attacked recently for being pro-state, and from being libertarian to sort of pro-state, uh, things like that. But this is the, the problem that the South African needs to solve. It needs this mass, expensive inf- infrastructure push that doesn't make sense in terms of GDP, but makes sense in terms of the social order, and it makes sense in terms of the consequences of having very good infrastructure. And this is what we're talking about. If you have a proper rail that doesn't make money, it doesn't actually matter. That's not the point of the rail. The point is to move people and goods cheaply and effectively. And all the social consequences that flow from that are much better than the, the profit and loss mechanism for that particular rail. And that's not going to happen by the, in the free markets. It just won't happen. That's the very essence of a public good that in the past, I used to think, yeah, the free market could do it or privatized trains and whatever the case might be. It might work in some ways or others, but in the context of South Africa, it just won't work based on the, our income tax base, based on our date, based on a variety of other things. So you need a state push to have all these social effects take place. My question to you, Canton, is why is the ANC so useless at this? Did they get terrible advice in the 90s? They become neoliberal due to pressure. I mean, I'm sure at the beginning, the ANC didn't want South Africa to be the way it is right now. There's very little doubt in my mind that that was the intention. But what, what what made this shift towards this sort of neoliberal, free market-ish type of thing? Then you bring in the corruption, then it all fucks out, as always. So what has prevented the ANC from actually building this country that we want?
1: Well, if you look in terms of what we were talking about around how the economy works, you have to understand how our politicians work. And again, their role is primarily extractive because they don't add value to the environment. What they're essentially doing is they are parasites who suck out and benefit from existing business models. So let's use public transport as as an example. Okay, how difficult would it have been to extend our train from Park station down to Soweto? Pretty simple, I would assume. Yeah, yeah, pretty simple. And the question is, why was it not done? Now, in in order for you to understand the reason why it was not done, you must recognize that the transportation that currently drives Gauteng, which is primarily taking people from Soweto and bringing them to Johannesburg and to Santan, is all provided by minibus taxis. Yes, And who owns those minibus taxis? Now, the minibus taxis themselves are not owned by the people who actually drive them. So, uh, again, I I need to go back and check my notes on this because, again, this is another chapter that I've tackled in my book. But there's something like 250,000 minibus taxis on the road. But the number of people who own those are about 30,000. Right. Yeah, so you consider now you've got 250,000 um, taxis out in the greater South African landscape. Let's assume that those 250,000 taxis are each of them pulling a um, thousand rand a day minimum, all right, for uh, 30,000 uh, people who happen to own those taxis. Why would they want to shut down that revenue stream in order to provide a better quality of life and to boost the economy? They, they have no reason to do so whatsoever. Now, Consider uh, again. This was during Machatila, and Chulowa's was tenure in in Caute. and you might remember that they had planned to install a monorail that was actually running from Soweto um, through to uh, uh, the city center. And they'd done all of the feasibility studies, and it ended up being extremely cost effective to do so. It would have been a sea change in the lives of the people of uh, of Soweto, and. They were all set to go ahead with it, and central government then pulled the plug on it. Yeah. So, you, uh, the answer to your question is: it's not that the ANC is incapable of doing it, and it's extractive. So that you're yeah, it, 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 it's extractive, and uh, unless you're finding a way to actually eliminate all of the illegal money that they are currently getting, and bus taxis are one of the single biggest sources of illegal revenue in this country. None of it um, Cash business uh, Yeah, it's, it's it's a cash business, exactly mm. How do you fix it? Well, you can't,
2: because if you try to regulate the minibus industry, the taxi business as we know, we saw during the uh, July peaceful protests, that uh, the taxi industry is rather powerful and uh, if they really want to shut you up they can shut you up
1: pretty quickly yeah, kind of well, well, actually, no actually I, I, I came up with a very elegant solution in terms of how we uh, we actually end up fixing that. But, uh, you know, with, which I'll, I'll go into it when you guys have me around when my book is out next month, and we can talk about that separately.
0: But, uh, I prefer um, the Bukele strategy. Which is? Round up every other alternative source of political power in your country, throw them into prison, become the Supreme King of El Salvador, and then you run the country properly. That's yeah. one way to word.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I get that. But uh, are you suggesting that Gaten is that person?
2: We are good not day. suggesting we do not side with any political opponents. <laughs> <laughs> we are independent. We yes. show no favor I mean, to per, any parties. Personally, Kenneth, I could it. If Gaten were to take that position,
1: we have no doubt that he would give it a fair shot. No, that's a fair comment. I, I kind of get that sense as well.
2: Mm. I suppose, you know, the, the key thing is that that's another thing, even with uh, the rail infrastructure, you know, there's, as you know, there's a lots of conspiracy theories, and Ramon and I, we're not conspiracy theorists, you know, because that would mean that we're alt-right, and Ramon and I got our colors today. We're very proud of it. We, we've we graduated to alt-left, so we've gone so far right that we did a full 360 and went down the other side It's kind of like mining so far down the earth that we landed up in china no one else thinks it's possible but we did it we're proof we're breaking
1: ground off we go so and 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 i've always said it so it's clearly well researched and backed by fact yeah. all right so i'll go along with that so
2: as as obviously alt our newfound alt left title means that uh. Obviously, we can't be conspiracy theorists because that's for the right. But as alt-left, we note that some people do comment that the damage to the infrastructure in South Africa could possibly have been caused by the taxi industry, which finds itself, and possibly even the lorry industry, which finds itself possibly threatened by public infrastructure
1: because it
2: would take away their monopolistic view on transport.
1: Look, I think that there's a grain of truth in all of that. You know, one of the issues for the taxi, uh, sorry, for the trucking um, fraternity, by the way, is the fact that we have a significant number of trucks that have replaced those rail routes that used to exist during the apartheid era. So consider right now that you have um, truck drivers who will pick up a load at Durban Harbour. And that truck then goes from Durban Harbor all the way up to Dar es Salaam. And so, you know, it's driving every country every step of the way. And again, guys, you know, I think we tend to forget that if you drive nonstop, Dar es Salaam is just like two days away. And this is the way in which a significant chunk of goods actually moves because it goes by road up through bike bridge, goes all the way up through... Uh, Zimbabwe, and then uh, punches north in the, into Tanzania. Now, we have truck drivers who are based primarily in KZN, who are upset about the fact that you have these truck drivers who, you, you know, they're, and they tend to be primarily Zimbabwean because, you know, they they move up and down across those countries. Now, your average um, South African truck driver has no interest whatsoever in going up to Dar es Salaam. They only have an interest in terms of protecting the N three. So yes, protecting uh, how, is do you actually, word. how do you end up fixing that problem? Well, <laughs> I, I think you know uh, there's a very simple way to do it. Just you know, make it a law that you cannot have any taxi, uh, uh, sorry, truck drivers from KZN. That'll sort it out.
0: <laughs> I'm sure that's against our very liberal constitution, Captain. Well, another element, we spoke to Zunaid Martin uh, earlier today, and he was you know, <clears throat> accused of being a, a smuggler and a corrupt person and all the rest of it, et cetera, et cetera. But he made quite a good point in terms of the fact that, you know, rail in South Africa is dead, <clears throat> so mining is a problem. But also by opening it up to trucks to transport all these things, smuggling is super easy, like much easier using trucking than using the rail because you got for the rail, you've got one railway, you can search the cars. Not that hard. When you've got twenty thousand truck at White Bridge, you're not gonna check twenty thousand trucks. That's for sure. So ironically state degradation has increased the likelihood of these, these the these cartels, mafias, and smugglers. Like it's easier than ever thanks to the degradation of state infrastructure, which is another thing that says, well it's not a it's not an issue that can be solved through libertarianism, it's an issue solved through state action. Well but again, you you must take a view that
1: the reason why things like smuggling actually occur is because of the fact that you have very extractive practices that are taking place, and yep. cigarettes being a case in point, for one. If you look in terms of the cost of production of the uh, of the product versus what government forces you to charge, you know, is it any surprise that you'll have people who are willing to actually smuggle the stuff in and out of the country? I consider that on your um, your average bottle of whiskey, you're paying duties of what, I think it's about 68 rand currently. So, you know, the cheapest bottle of whiskey that you can get right now is probably what, it's either Vat 69 or TNG, which will go for around about 140 rand a bottle. But out of that, you know, more than... You, uh, you obviously don't yeah. know that because you're not a keen drinker, right? I mean, you're guessing...
2: Just, just you, you, st- you, you put that fact out there so quickly. I, I think it's
1: just speculation. But not- no, no, it's actually reasonably accurate because uh, I shop for alcohol on a fairly regular basis. Um, <laughs> I bought about six cases of wine earlier today, and uh, yeah, I check our prices while well. I'm while well, around there. But, but my point is that it's. Um, I forget, I don't know what's the cost of a pack of cigarettes now now, Barrett, so maybe you could help me with that one.
2: Oh, but, exactly uh, I don't smoke however Ramon
0: is. Vapes. Yeah, but Ramon vapes, yeah. yeah. Mm. Which the taxes are starting. So an ordinary pack of cigarettes costs two and fifty to manufacture. Yes. The tax on that is twenty Rand. Yes. So any cigarette that you see lying around that's under the purchase price of like twenty two Rand fifty is obviously not paying that tax. That's why cigarettes yes. are at 50 rand a box, because now they can make 25 rand profits on the thing. Yes. Okay. Due to the taxes being 10 times more than the actual manufacturing price.
1: Sure. But now if you consider from the point of view of a person running a spaza shop, if they can end up getting a shipment of cigarettes that they end up effectively paying um, 10 rand a packet for, that they can then end up selling for 30 rand a packet, why would they not do it? And it's because of the fact that we have an extraordinary tax that has been put on a particular product by our government for no other reason than the fact that they can. Because it's certainly not benefiting the populace as a whole, if you so think I'm, about
2: it. I'm going to share something with you, and I'd love to hear your response. Now now we go back to the right, demand with our conspiracy theories. So we intercepted an ANC audio file of a key individual I mean, very key individual in the ANC where they talked about
1: why cigarettes got banned during the lockdown. I don't know about you intercepting it. I sent that file to Roman. <laughs> why are you causing shit? <laughs> You're not meant to give the sources away. No, oh, give, guys, give give credit where credit is due. Come on, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting stuff.
2: Yeah, go ahead. So, so they they maintain. That apparently that they banned cigarettes as a giant fu to the main manufacturer of cigarettes in this country, who they classed as white monopoly capital. Yes. What do you think of that? We all uh, got a cigarette banned because it was a
1: fu to one company. <laughs> Based. Look, yeah. Again, you know, it was forwarded as received, and you know, my ability to actually verify whether that was the motivation on the part of, of course, I can't speak to that. You know, far too many people try and get into people's heads. But, you know, you judge people by their actions, and then you try and draw conclusions from that and say, does this narrative actually make sense? It certainly made sense to me. But, uh, but and, you know, what what's interesting for me is that, You see, the question I always ask myself, if I was in this person's position, would I do the same thing? And in this case, the answer is probably yes. Now, that doesn't mean that me as an individual, you know, would do the same thing. People are not able to draw that distinction between saying, you know, if I put myself in someone else's shoes, what type of strategy would I adopt? And and guys, there's a technical term for this. It's called empathy. We don't have that. You, know, the, you see, you, you have to learn and, and the the way in which you show empathy is that, you know, you take a look in terms of what Putin is doing and you say, well, if I was in his position and wanting to achieve the following objectives, what would I do? You know, Bob which doesn't that's, need, Ukraine. <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's got nothing to do. No way, with that's a, whether doing. or not I approve of it, it's, it's a question of, you know, what is the strategy that I would adopt if I was in that position? It's not a moral judgment, it's a just an, an that, assessment. So going back to Korsazana, yeah. Um, I, I think it, it is the sort of FU that she would give. That, come on, man. That, that clip was
2: gold. I literally yeah. I literally <clears throat> listened to that entire clip and I was like, I want to vote for her. I want to meet her and shake her hand. I'm like, well, so face. Yeah. Why did I ban alcohol? Well, Murdoch's in there. That didn't control all the wine forms. So there was a giant cure to the Murdoch. It's like,
1: no, man. he yeah, are it. Is. You know, and right. of course, got, got props from me at the point at which the Iranians pitched up in, in South Africa. And they were upset about the fact that, you know, she met them without covering her head. And she very politely said, I don't think so. Well, one time <laughs> she had a duck,
0: is when She needed a duck. Come now. No, but she's... struggling. Well, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, well. He it, it just was like... Hey, no, but, but, guys, be- but guys, <laughs> seriously, you know, but I mean, what we fail to consider is, yes that there are these forces that are in play in our country all the time. And, you know, we, we're not a rainbow nation. We have various centers of power, and all of those centers of power have their own economic um, bases that they need to be maintaining and and to ensure some sort of longevity. And in some cases, they do so violently, you know, in the case of taxi drivers who all shoot each other to maintain territory. Um, in others, it's uh, it, it, it's political posturing. But going back to the you know one of the points that you were making uh, earlier, Roman, in terms of how we go about building uh, stuff in this country, so I'll, I'll tell you a, a very quick story. Um, this was in terms of you know the dawn of the internet in our country, where you had two wireless players. So there was iBurst, and then there was Centec with my wireless.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so you know. Little-known fact, Sentec actually has Spectrum at its disposal, that for a brief period it flirted with um, the idea of wireless connectivity. And um, I had uh, a very close friend of mine who actually ended up consulting for Sentec for a period, and there was a 500 million rand allocation that had been made to Sentec to essentially roll out this um, to take that spectrum and then roll it out um, across the city of Johannesburg at the time as essentially a, a Wi-Fi Max product you know one that uh, essentially a Wi-Fi network that would spread across the city and yeah so there was 500 million allocated to it so my friend says well you know actually what you do is you don't spend the the 500 million what you do is you get the Chinese to come in and build the network for you. You stick the $500 million into an investment account, and the revenue that gets generated from that is enough to pay off the loan to the Chinese over the next period, and at the end of it, you've still got the $500 million sitting in your bank account. And the cadre said no, because what they wanted was for that $500 million to be spent so that they could get their share of it. So now you understand how the extractive model actually works in terms of our country. Another example that comes to mind, okay, Starlink is being rolled out. It's in Mozambique. It's in Kenya. Okay, yeah. it's all over the place, but it's not out here. Why? Because the cadres say 30% of it has to come uh, to the comrades. Now, not- now, just imagine the impact on our rural environments if they have access to Starlink. Yeah, immediately cons- you can increase our uh, our education infrastructure just by
0: having access to that connectivity. Yeah, but ANC loves poor dumb people. I mean, let's be honest that that's what gives it power for the most part. And also, my conspiracy is I'm sure MTN and Vodacom and Rain and a lot of these guys are like saying to the ANC, listen, we will do thirty percent women and children and if shareholding and or BE and all the rest of it, it's done, let Starlink in and they're getting what they want for the most part. A lot of these local guys can absorb those political costs to prevent competition from coming in as well. So it benefits corporates of Africa as well, not their starting to a large degree.
1: Well, again, there's some merit to what you're saying just based on the evidence, and the evidence is the fact that our internet costs in this country are significantly higher than the first world. So, yeah. I mean, my daughter has moved to the UK and, you know, she gets a a pack that includes unlimited internet, unlimited calls and all of that kind of stuff Um, that she ends up paying a couple of hundred for a month. Yep. all talking 5G speeds.
2: Yeah. But unfortunately, the data in South Africa is very expensive. Overly priced, one might say. That's also because of the monopolistic
1: approach. Spectrum. Sure, but 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 then consider at the same time, guys, that what has been happening increasingly in this space is the massive rollout of fiber that's been taking place. And because of the fact that in the fiber space, you've actually got the split between the, um, the people who actually lay down the infrastructure and then the people who run services on top of the infrastructure, we've actually got real competition in terms of the fiber environment. And so as a direct result of that, you know, your um, internet connectivity costs on fiber are significantly lower overall on a cost per megabyte basis than anything that you can get on wireless, you know, no matter how people try to spin it in terms of, you know, rolling out of towers and... Uh, yeah, very and so much so. Problem is yeah. getting and access and eventually, what, eventually what's going to happen is that um, the number of times that you're going to have to rely on your uh, your telcos to provide you with your connectivity. It, it's primarily going to be in, you know, when you're uh, traveling outside of uh, uh, your work environment and outside of your home environment. But otherwise, you know, you walk in any shopping center, you've got dozens of free hotspots to choose from. Um, you've probably got 24-7 connectivity at home, 24-7 connectivity at work, that's, you know, available at no cost to you. So the business model for most of these guys, they're actually shooting themselves in the foot. So again, it's, it's you know, uh, the majority of, uh, of the middle class in this country are taking as many steps as possible to essentially stop their reliance on government services. You know, we, so we've spoken about medical aid, we've spoken about private security, we speak about private education um putting in place solar panels and inverters at your home going off grid in terms of your water these are all things that fundamentally are taking money away from places where they used to go previously i mean the post office they're never going to be able to resurrect it because everyone right now is in the postal services business if you go um uh, i was shopping at a pep a couple of days back and there's an entire counter that's devoted to their parcel services because, you know, Pep is one of the most widespread outlets in the country. And all these guys do is they pitch up at a Pep, you put down your 50 bucks and you drop down uh, a parcel. And then the following day, someone picks it up at a Pep store in the neighborhood. I believe there's even Pep down in Port Elizabeth,
0: the Fired. <laughs> <laughs> is there a Pep in Port Elizabeth, Fired? It's a, a, a question about the importance. Well, Pep. Yes. Yeah. Fancy peps. But well well I, like, I can send you all your stuff with pest tools now. Just to
1: the there. There.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like Port Elizabeth.
2: It's like call money here. It's like the any store here. Pep. <laughs> like,
1: cheap shit, you get a pep thing, <laughs> but everyone knows that. Peps. Yeah, so but but, but Raman, yeah. yes, the nature of the economy and, uh, um, and and the reason why politicians don't understand it and you know, their failure to be able to fix it. It, it Yeah, it all comes down to these things, and it really is a question of fixing these things one piece at a time. And, and they are small but meaningful steps that you end up taking. The, this is not about the big-ticket items in terms of fixing the country right now. But, you know, granting a BEA exemption to Starlink is the, one of the quickest things that you can do to actually boost the quality of lives of people in rural areas. Simple, yeah, yeah. They, they, could they might not want to read,
2: and then that that they would like damage electoral success. So the argument goes, but we all know the real argument is you just there's not enough grift in it. I think if I think if Elon spoke to the right guys and
1: gave them a check, you know, said write your own amounts in it, he'd probably get that exemption really quickly. Yeah, except you know, my my view in terms of, of Starlink right now, if you look in terms of the 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 cost versus um uh, the, the connectivity, it's not clear to me that he's running Starlink at a profit at the moment.
0: No, but, probably not. Yeah. So it's the Uber model. It's like you run it and last for years, but just to get what's it called, the footprint or economies of scale going first. Well, I mean, and then you, you know. run it a
1: profit. Yeah, but, but also you know what? What it means is that um, if if you look in terms of the, the the kind of mental model that Musk seems to be espousing, uh, in terms of Twitter, as an example, he's never going to make his money back on Twitter. But you know, there's a a concept of uh, of a greater good that he's been pulling in uh, at that level, which is very different from Soros's uh, uh, view, which is based on similar lines. But you know, obviously, Soros's view is based on destruction of established communities and uh, whereas musk's model seems to be well you know make stuff accessible to everyone and the world becomes a better place as a result yeah but yeah the short answer is yeah, I, I i don't think that he has any interest in paying kickbacks to get starlink into the country because hey you know if you get starlink it's it's fine and and the truth is that there's nothing stops us now from you know, hop on a flight to Nairobi, you know, <laughs> pick up Starlink out there. Nairobi, unlike us, they don't have exchange controls. So you're able to get your money in and out of Nairobi without any issues. And uh, bring the Starlink unit back here. And you know, you can be, you know, sitting on your farm out in the middle of Moimbesi Messi Fontaine and, you know, old school.
0: <clears throat> I would live in that place. Uh
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm. um, Byron, do you know what Moimaisi Sonobrukis Fonte means? Okay, sorry. Yeah, I'll ruin (laughs) it. All right, Byron, last question from you, and then one more from me, and then I think we can call it. I'm good, Robert. Uh, Go for it. All right. right. So, So, Calvin, assuming the purple cow got like two million seats in Parliament and you would be president. I know you say this is a small stuff that needs to be taken care of. I fully understand, but what is like the major stuff that could be solved quite quickly, which you would undertake first, should you be the dictator of South Africa?
1: Well, I've said this before, and it could be transport. And that, the reason why I say it would be transport is that if you put in place mass commuter transit, the overall impact in terms of the quality of life for society as a whole is substantial. I mean, you just consider the concept of um, absentee fathers. And then what that ends up meaning in terms of discipline and uh, just in terms of building coherent societies. So, you know, you have kids who are out in Soweto, father's up at 5 a.m., gets back at, at 8 p.m. There's no opportunity in the air during the daytime to have any sort of engagement in terms of, you know, building uh, any sense of uh, moral fiber in terms of basic discipline, you know, all of those types of things that, you know, I grew up with, and I assume you grew up with to some extent as well. Now, fixing transport, to my mind, is the quickest way that you actually get that sorted. The story that comes to mind, um, you know, these these waste collectors that uh, a lot of us actually pissed off about. And, you know, the thing is that they actually end up fulfilling a niche because there's money to be made in it. And a couple of years ago, I spoke to the guy who was a waste collector in my neighborhood. And um, he was a Zimbabwean, naturally. But um, he came to the country and he used to work in construction and he was earning 150 rand a day Mm -hmm. in construction. And then so he got into this waste picking. And essentially what happens is that he gets up at four in the morning and he starts walking, pulling the trolley along the road, and he walks all the way across to whatever suburb. So in in my case, he's walking from Alexandra up to Buclou, which is where I live. Um, he spends his time here going through all of the trash cans, eventually loads his thing up, and then he walks from here all the way to, to Newtown, which is where the depot is, where they offload the stuff. And then he walks from Newtown all the way back to Alex. And and I asked him, I said, you know, but, you know uh, why do you do this? And he said, well, firstly, I'm making more money than I was when I was in construction. Okay, so he's pulling about 2,000 rand a week. He's pulling about 8,000 rand a month, effectively tax-free. That, uh, but he said the most crucial thing is that he's back home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and that means that he has time to spend with his family. Now, guys, you can't put a price tag on that. I can't say this strongly enough. You know, you want us to to eliminate crime in society. You want us to actually build a coherent framework. It really starts with something as simple as ensuring that when people are going to work and coming back, they're not wasting their time sitting on their own. You actually maximize the amount of time that parents are able to spend with their families. Now, agree. Roman I don't know about you but you know certainly at my home you know we have dinner as a family around the table every evening Same. you know we yeah yeah and we you know we, we sit around the table we like panels you know we uh we click glasses at the start of the meal in lieu of grace because you know I'm a godless atheist as you know but um, it's it, It's the sense of ritual and the sense of the family coming together on a daily basis where you talk about stuff and you know how your day has been, and you know you discuss matters of consequence. and that's how you build the structure of society. And to my mind, fixing public transport is the most crucial way that you can actually get that off the ground. It's not about education, it's not about all of the other stuff. Start with transport.
2: I'd agree. And Ramon and I, when we've traveled up and down the country, we've looked at the infrastructure and said, "Oh, we ruled the place, we'd be fixing this infrastructure all day.
0: Completely agree. Yeah, from Burford West to PE, that railway line, completely empty. And it's actually heartbreaking to see it. It really is.
1: Yeah, well, you know, let's look at the railway lines that are flowing through Neisner. And, you know, when I was, I remember during the apartheid era, there were trains that were flowing all that way through every day.
0: So, new political party, we don't follow it, I don't know what, and the slogan is going to be based transport or something. Transport for the people, I don't know. We need to find a catchy name. TPA. I don't know.
1: You know, I I still get people asking, you know, what's going to happen in terms of uh, of the purple car. You know, frankly, there's so much happening between now and next year, but the recent changes to the way in which the electoral structures work, it's, it's a basket case, guys. I mean, you know, allowing individuals to run is the quickest way for the ANC to actually split the vote and to ensure that they retain power. And I'm pretty sure that just simply based on that fact. I mean, so consider that you're running as, uh, as an individual and you end up, um, you know, let's say you pull uh, a minimum of 35,000 votes to get yourself into parliament. But, you know, the number of people who voted for you, 200,000 the rest of those votes are thrown away. Yep. You don't have the but ability you know, to allocate it. We, did, we actually did an actual, an actual episode on this. We actually discussed
2: what the mm. actual implications of it were. And I was just reminded our kind of thinking about it as lawyers. Like, what would the actual implication be? You know, you imagine being in Parliament, you've got no caucus to go through. You've got like 20 seconds to say your piece. you got one vote that really means nothing. Like, you've got no machinery behind you pushing anything through. It's It's like... It just wouldn't work feasibly. And we just sat there just like, guys, just think of the practical level. This is the most useless thing ever. Man, you should see the hate. It's the that everybody's like, how dare you direct elections or our future? How dare you? And it's like, it's dumb, man. Okay. The whole
1: thing is dumb. But fine. But it's all, we've got it. But it's all about logistics, guys. You know, everything in the world today is about logistics. Okay, the iPhone would be absolutely nothing if not for the fact that, uh, that uh, Tim was able to figure out how literally to build a billion iPhones and to ship them around the rest of the world within the space of a couple of weeks. And you don't do that by saying each person is going to carry an iPhone to a different part of the world.
0: A very strong case, Canton. Very strong case. So maybe we should do a deep dive into transportation, Byron, in one of our episodes. Then we're gonna be called, I don't know, socialist or something for any family infrastructure to work. Who knows? But uh Canton, appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
1: Absolute pleasure, guys. Love your work.
0: And when your book is out. And uh
2: I hope you enjoy you. listening to us, the uh old left commie shows for insert words
1: here. Mm-hmm. As, as I, a, i'm firmly i'm firmly the center guys so you know i'm I'm chilled whichever way you want nah not us like you know us huh we're far left we never but i'm waiting for your partnership with the eff coming soon <laughs> oh man <laughs> we've been trying to get that interview forever and a day and, like
2: juju just ignores all of our calls man come on we've graduated to proper hardcore socialist communist at this point like it's all just a, it's all a
0: front man it's just to get an interview juju <laughs> What do we need to do is dress up like cows and then I'll just be around his vicinity. Maybe you'll come join us with a knife. <laughs> cutting the throat of cow nest. <laughs> well, That's Ramon nice. actually made a very good
2: point. <laughs> and that is, remember when he actually said that and the Afri Forum took him to court? Like, I'm cutting the throat to whiteness. That's like racist and stuff. And Ramon made a very valid point now. And that is, Juju has shown that he can't do that. Even if he wanted to, he'd be pretty useless at it. Therefore, there is no threat. It's like, it's it's a baseless threat. So how can you sue
1: Juju? Like, he can't cut shit. It's, it makes sense. It makes as, sense. As I, as, 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 as I said, what gives me hope for this country is that Boers and Muslims have guns. Amen and Inchallah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. This is fun. Later. Yes.
0: Bye. Bye. Thanks, Kenton. That was cool.